Let's start somewhere the public usually never gets to see. A rehearsal. You don't get to see them because they're full of mistakes and risk and things an orchestra doesn't want you to see. This rehearsal is unfolding in 1894 in the city of Weimar, Germany. The city's symphony orchestra is rehearsing an insanely difficult opera written by their conductor himself, Richard Strauss. Richard is 29 and he's the junior conductor. His opera is called Guntram. It's his very first one and it's a little ambitious. Even Ricard had to admit, he'd gone a little overboard. His score has parts for 62 string players, and he only had 21 to work with. He described his own work as, quote, insanely demanding, especially for the vocalist. He felt bad for his male lead, Heinrich Zeller, whose voice sounded so hoarse already, still just in rehearsals that he might lose it entirely by opening night. Not a good sign. Ricard's opera wasn't just physically demanding. The music is dense and complicated, too, which is probably why Zeller just can't seem to learn his part. Ricard keeps stopping him over and over again to correct every little mistake. Finally, they make it to Act 3, and Zeller takes a break. Now, it was Paulina de Anna's turn to sing her aria which she does beautifully. She doesn't miss a single note. But suddenly, she goes silent. Why don't you stop me, she says, clearly annoyed. Because you know your part, Ricard tells her. Some artists might take this as a compliment, but not Paulina. This infuriates her. With the entire orchestra watching, she launches her sheet music at Ricard's head, yelling, I want to be stopped. Fortunately, she misses his head. The music lands in the violin section. Paulina storms off to her dressing room with Ricard following close behind. The orchestra could hear them yelling at each other from behind the closed door. And one story goes that, hearing all that commotion, the orchestra leader finally works up the courage to knock on Paulina's dressing room door. When Ricard answers, the orchestra leader tells him that everyone had talked it over and they'd made a decision. They refused to play with anyone who would disrespect him the way Paulina just had. But Ricard says, it's okay. He and Paulina had more than made up. In fact, he said, he just asked her to marry him. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. We bring you the stories that have shaped classical music, the heartbreaks, the betrayals, and the acts of sheer genius that changed everything. And today we have a little change of pace. The world of classical music is packed with dramatic figures whose lives are filled with intrigue, heartbreak, and suffering, right? Well, today, 
I want to tell you the story of a musical couple that's more a uh, slapstick rom-com than melodrama. Richard Strauss and Paulina de Anna had one of those big, splashy loves. People often write about Richard and Paulina as artist and muse. But I think that completely downplays her role in his life. When I think muse, I imagine this passive beauty, admired from afar. Paulina was anything but passive. And forget afar, she'd get right up in Ricard's face if she needed to. She didn't just have a voice, she had a loud one that she loved to use on stage and off. Ricard loved that voice. Through music, he documented their lives together, their highs and lows their spats, and their moments of total devotion. So that big scene Paulina caused in that rehearsal, the yelling and the throwing of music, that's nothing compared to what else is coming. This, this is a story of a man meeting his match in so many ways. When Ricard and Paulina were in their early 20s, Paulina was taking music lessons from a friend of Ricard's, and sometimes that friend needed Ricard to sub in for him. Oil, meet fire. Ricard thought Paulina was incredibly talented, but they went at it over music, butting heads. At one time, Ricard was so upset by the mistakes Paulina made in the lesson that he wrote her a sarcastic note. You are now so set on going your own way that my presence and the influence it inevitably exercises could only seem a burden to you. At the end of the letter, he told her their lessons were canceled for now and the foreseeable future. Don't call me again, basically. Ricard actually told Paulina to leave him alone forever multiple times at the beginning of their acquaintance. And not entirely without reason. Paulina was famously testy. If she didn't like you, you'd hear about it. She was a woman who made her opinions known. And more often than not, they were harsh. Ricard, on the other hand, was known for being patient, easygoing, in his personal life anyway. Professionally, he was a bit of a diva himself. Once in rehearsal with his orchestra, he threatened to throw his conducting baton at musicians for playing the wrong note. So when he crossed paths with another diva, one that could match him in stubbornness and in willingness to throw things at people's heads, there were bound to be sparks, right? At some point, their tense relationship of teacher and student, composer and star, it turned romantic. And when that sheet music whizzed past his head during that nightmare rehearsal, well, that did it for Ricard somehow. Clearly, this was forever. The couple made it official and announced their engagement publicly the day that Ricard's oh-so-difficult first opera, Guntram, premiered, May 10, 1894. And Guntram, 
turned out to be a complete flop. The critics hated it, but they loved his fiancée. In fact, Paulina's performance was the one part of Guntram they did like. The year they got engaged, Ricard wrote a new collection of songs for voice and piano. This piece, Cecilia, he wrote in just a single day, the day before they got married. He dedicated the entire collection, his Opus 27, to his Geliebten Paulina, his beloved Paulina. It was his wedding gift to her. These songs were the first of many that Ricard wrote, both for and about Paulina. Sometimes his music was metaphorical, but other times it was downright literal. It was irresistible material because they had a relationship fit for the stage. In 1898, Ricard set out to write an orchestral tone poem he called Ein Heldenleben. Unlike the wedding gift collection, this work has no vocal parts, no soprano voice, but Paulina still makes an appearance in the form of a solo violin. This is one of the things I love in music, when an instrument stands in for a person. It's hard to pull off, the idea that you could capture a personality through music notes alone. But the violin part Ricard wrote was unmistakably Paulina and wasn't always flattering. Sometimes the violin sounds rude or angry. In other parts, it really sounds like a scolding wife. And this isn't just a theory. Ricard wrote notes for the violinist about how to play. He used words like flippant, angry, and nagging. I wonder how Paulina felt about that. But the violin also plays the most memorable melody of the piece, a sweet and loving one. was not out to flatter his wife. 
He wanted to capture Paulina exactly as he saw her, her sweet side and her harsh side. And this might sound like Ricard pushing his luck with her. I mean, I don't think I'd love having my personality picked apart for an audience like that. But later in life, Ricard would push it much, much further. Paulina's career on the opera stage was not a long one. Her pregnancy had led to a complicated, dangerous birth. She needed time now to recover, and even after that, she didn't have the stamina she once did. She thought it was time for a break. Ricard considered her far and away the best interpreter of his work. It was a shame that her singing career had to end so early, he said. Instead, Paulina began to focus her energy on running their house, raising their son Franz, and making sure Ricard had everything he needed. But Paulina didn't suddenly transform into some kind of docile housefrau. That was definitely not her style. Paulina, it seemed, thought what Ricard really needed, as he found success, was to be occasionally put in his place. One day, a conductor friend was visiting them when Ricard asked for some water. Paulina immediately shot back, get it yourself. Their friend jumped up to go grab it, probably trying to end this awkward moment as fast as he could, but Paulina shut him down too. No, stay where you are, she said. He can get it for himself. Ricard did as he was told. Once he'd left the room, Paulina turned to their guest. It does him good to move about, she explained. And it wasn't just the water glass. She'd usually start the day off by ordering him to go to his study. Go compose, she'd tell him. She bossed him around at the musical level, too. She'd leave notes for him on early drafts of his work. Once in the margins, she wrote, dreadful mess and horrid composing. Bluntness was her thing. But even the unflappable Ricard had his limits. Sometimes he'd run out of patience and snap back at her. More often than not, though, he seemed amused. Once he tried to explain their relationship to a friend, he told him, My wife is often extremely harsh, but, you know, I need that. Ricard's next big project was another tone poem. This time, he wrote parts not just for him and Paulina, but for their young son, too. It was a revealing glimpse into the Strauss's home life. Some people called it scandalous. He called it Symphonia Domestica. In the first movement, we meet the three main characters. Each one is represented by a different theme. The easygoing father in F major. The excitable mother in B major. And the baby, the only child, is a calm theme in D minor. 
The piece walks us through the daily activities of the Strauss household. Extended relatives show up and fawn over the baby. Soon comes bedtime. We hear a little lullaby. The baby fights it, but eventually falls asleep. The clock chimes seven o'clock, and now the mother and father are left alone. We hear the father working in his study. But eventually, his wife interrupts him. And then, something very risque happens. A sex scene. You can hear the wife's theme and the husband's theme suddenly uh, intertwined, all tangled up. And, well, what happens after that doesn't need too much analysis. Next thing you know, the clock is chiming again. It's 7 a.m. And the entire family is awake and at it again. But sometimes, the Strauss's bickering turned into real fighting. After the break... Imagine watching the worst moment of your marriage play out on stage. Hey, friends, I'm Lauren Ober, and I'm the host of Spectacular Failures, a new podcast where we dig into the true stories behind some of the biggest blunders in business history, like when Kodak fumbled its own amazing invention, the digital camera, or when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Christian theme park tanked because of scandal and fraud. Some of the stories are funny, some are sad, some are like, wait, what? No way! But each one will give you a totally new perspective on big business and big failure. Check us out at SpectacularFailures.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. Now, Paulina Diana was a jealous person, especially when it came to her recard. At one point, she told a friend that she would, quote, scratch the eyes out of any hussy who was after my recard. Not subtle. One day, Paulina was going through the mail when she opened a letter addressed to Ricard. You ever see a text come through on your partner's phone and get curious? Yeah, it's kind of like that. This letter, well, the contents set her off. It read, Dear Herr Strauss, I waited for you as usual in the Union Bar, but in vain, alas. Excuse me? Who was waiting in a bar for her husband as usual? The letter writer went on to ask Herr Strauss for concert tickets and then signed off, Your faithful Mitsamuka. Mitza, for the record, is a cute little pet name for a woman. Sort of like Chick. And I'm betting Paulina would have scratched this chick's eyes out if she knew where to find her. 
but she had no idea who this woman was. In Paulina's mind, this was no casual flirtation either. She was convinced this was proof of an affair. What was she to do? This situation was too big for any of her normal theatrics. So she didn't yell. She didn't try to make Ricard jealous. She bottled up her rage and didn't even mention the letter. Instead, she began making a plan. A week later, Ricard left town for a trip to England, and she made her first move. She sent him a telegram demanding a divorce. She wasn't playing either. She wrote to her lawyer to get things underway, and she withdrew 2,000 marks from their shared bank account. She worked fast. But Ricard sent back a reply. Slow your roll. He said he'd never set foot in any union bar. He had no idea who Mitsumuka was either. He was annoyed by her nuclear-level reaction. But his tone was teasing. Couldn't she see this was all a mix-up? He pointed out to Paulina that there were at least two other Strausses in Berlin. One of them was even a conductor at the opera, which, thinking about it, would explain this woman's request for concert tickets. Ricard asked a friend to use the return address to track down this woman and figure out just who she'd really been trying to meet at that bar. But mostly, he took Paulina's divorce threat like a laugh. He complained that he had just settled in to compose something really nice when he'd been interrupted by her angry telegram. And then he had to spend the rest of the afternoon clearing his name. He signed the letter. For today, loving greetings and kisses from the adulterer. And soon, Ricard's friend did solve the mystery. Mitsumuka had meant to write the composer Josef Stransky, and it simply mixed up their names. Okay, at this point you might be thinking, yikes, what an impossible person to be married to. Ricard is some kind of patient saint. But if you thought that teasing her a little and clearing his name was the end of this incident, you'd of course be wrong. Ricard was not over it. No, he made his feelings known in other ways, not by flirting with someone or threatening divorce. Instead, He bottled up his annoyance and stewed about it for years. And then when he was ready, he took his feelings to the stage. 22 years later, that's right, over two decades, I bet Paulina probably thought she'd never have to hear about the Mitsumuka incident ever again. Until one evening, when she sat down in the audience of the Dresden Opera House, she was there for the premiere of Ricard's opera, Intermezzo. The curtains went up to reveal a room that looked familiar. Maybe a little too familiar. It was an expert reproduction of the Strauss's dressing room on stage. And that wasn't the only part of the opera that seemed a little too close to home. The male lead of the opera is a conductor named Robert, and his wife, Christina, spends the first scene of the opera nagging and picking at her husband. Hmm. Ricard had changed the names and some of the details, but his new opera clearly was not fiction. 
As Paulina sat in the audience, she watched the Mitsumuka incident play out on stage. All the drama over the letter and the divorce threat and the mixed-up identity, this time with actors and costumes and a full orchestra to accompany them. Ricard had turned their biggest drama into an opera. Not only was the plot taken straight from their lives, some of the actors' lines were verbatim quotes from Paulina and Ricard's argument. The character of Christina runs through a long list of complaints, ones that probably felt uncomfortably familiar for Paulina. She nags her husband about his diet and gripes about their maid. The character of Robert, a thinly disguised Ricard, remember, seems like a charming, easygoing husband. Paulina must have thought to herself, of course Ricard would make himself out to be the nice guy. By the second act, the fictional Robert's friends are hurling insults at the fictional Christina. But Paulina knew who those insults were really for. And so did the audience. The critics. Everyone must have been mortified. After the cast took its final bow, the woman who played Christina in the opera came to say hello. She wanted to congratulate Paulina on this marvelous gift from her husband. Paulina snapped at her. I don't give a damn, she said. She was furious. The day after the premiere, the couple had to make the long drive back home from Dresden, and there was a literal storm brewing outside. Thunder cracked outside the car while Paulina laid into Ricard. Their driver remembered that day, remembered Paulina giving Ricard an earful as they drove through the storm. She kept at it the entire way. Again, he kind of deserved it. It's like if the Mona Lisa wasn't this nice posed portrait, but a snapshot of her in sweatpants when she didn't know anyone was looking. You've been made famous, but not exactly the way you want to be remembered. Luckily for Ricard, life imitates art. And just like the characters in his opera, they did eventually make up. I mean, there was, after all, quite a bit of romance in the opera, too. If you could overlook the whole invasion of privacy thing. And Ricard did end his opera with a sappy line, one that I think he really believed. He wrote, Is ours not what you'd call a perfect marriage? Ricard and Paulina's love continued to the end of their lives. When they were both well into their 80s, Ricard wrote a collection of songs for soprano and orchestra. When you listen... It seems like he knew they'd be his last. The songs are almost all about death, 
They're accepting and peaceful, but resigned to the fact that the end is near. And they're also about his life with Paulina, the voice he'd been writing for since they'd first met. The last song of the set, Im Abendrot, or At Sunset, was based on a poem by Josef von Eichendorf. Ricard had read it and decided to set it to music. It was his message to Paulina at the very end. We have, through sorrow and joy, gone hand in hand. From our wanderings, let's now rest above this quiet land. A year later, Ricard died while Paulina held his hand, and she followed not too far behind. Now, before we close this episode, I want to emphasize that the Strausses are a difficult couple to capture. Their story is complicated for many reasons, including the fact that near the end of their lives, they lived in Germany while Hitler rose to power. Late in his career, Richard wrote pieces for the Nazi regime. He served as president of the State Music Bureau, but he also lost that top post when he insisted that a Jewish man who wrote the libretto for his opera be properly credited in the program. There are many important conversations to be had about how we think of music composed by people with ties to hate. We have more about that in our episode's notes and on our website. Check out those resources for more background. For a complete listing of the music you heard in this episode, go to decomposedshow.org. That's decomposedshow.org for more about the music you heard this episode. You'll also see our reading list there. For this episode, we recommend Richard Strauss, Man, Musician, Enigma by Michael Kennedy. Decomposed is hosted by me, Jade Simmons. It's produced by Tracy Mumford and Ryan Lore. Chris Julin is our editor. This episode was written by Elissa Dudley with me. Sound design by Aaron Cohen. Engineering by John Steele, Michael Osborne, and John Miller. Thanks to Elizabeth Lundy, our researcher, and Ryan Katz, our fact checker. The interim director of podcasts for APM is Lauren D. 
Decomposed is made possible by Inspired by You, NPR's capital campaign, and the generosity of Ruth and John Huss. Much of the music featured is courtesy of Naxos of America, Incorporated. Before you go, let's talk about how these stories get told. Decomposed is a public radio podcast that is supported by your donations. This show and shows like it only happen with your support. Donate today to hear more shows like this from APM Podcast. Give today at decomposedshow.org slash donate. <laughs>